0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: This will certainly have an adult theme and might
2: well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. <laughs>
0: Um. <laughs> chart music <laughs> <laughs>
3: chart music
4: hey you're
2: pup- craze youngsters and welcome to part two of episode 71 of chart music I'm Al Needham That's Taylor Parks.
1: Not a lot.
2: And here comes Neil Kulkarne. I'm
3: here, I'm here.
2: And we are about to embark upon the episode of Top of the Pops from March the 19th, 1981, which was a very magical time, wasn't it, chaps?
3: yeah. What a wonderland it was that we were living in.
2: Yeah, we all put on our Pierre costumes and threw bricks at the police before waving Union Jacks for our dashing prince and his lovely new wife before being made redundant. (laughs) i mean without question chaps 1981 stank of unwashed cock and the only good thing about it was the music
3: yeah i think you're probably right
2: as we'll find out (laughs) (laughs) all right then pop craze youngsters it is time to go way back to march of 1981 always remember we may coat Dan your favourite band or artist, but we never forget they've been on Top of the Pops more than we have. Hello, welcome to yet another edition of Top of the Pops. It's twenty past seven on Thursday, March 19th, 1981, and Top of the Pops has entered its ninth month under the reign of Michael Hurl, and business is booming. It's been knocking on the door of the top 10 most watched broadcasts on all three channels all year. And while this episode will pull down a mere 14.9 million viewers on a part with Crossroads, Open Or Hours and The Professionals, next week's episode will bag 19 million on them, Oof. which is Coronation Street numbers. And I have no idea why. A
3: third of the population, pretty much. Yes. It was all we had, that's the thing. It was all we had. Yeah, Yeah. I bet it was raining that night.
2: (laughs) Pop music TV-wise, it's currently the only game in town, with only the old Grey Whistle Test and a few late-night regional efforts knocking about. And the only new music programme that ITV have in the works at the moment is Moondog's Matinee, which is another Muriel Young Kids programme hosted by a band from Northern Ireland, which featured the likes of Chaz and Dave Rock Pile, and Andy Fairweather Low. (laughs) Not only that, but Top of the Pops is also going through a very rare period where it's not being coated down in the media. Even Clive James found time to mention this episode in his TV review in Next Sunday's Observer and said that one of the acts on tonight's show, quote, uncorked the best pop single in years. It should make you feel good about life for about three and a half minutes. I'll leave it there (laughs) for now.
1: A mystery from The Godfather.
2: Is it as good as dog shit in my garden, I wonder? (laughs) The period of guest presenters, pop news and surprise micro-interviews that flared up after the technician strikes is long behind us. But chaps, we're still a long way from the yellow era. And judging by this episode, the show is absolutely crying out for a revamp, don't you think? Very much so.
3: It's not looking 80s yet. Um, there's frequent moments in this episode where if you'd have been told, you know, this was from 76 or something, you could have well believed it. Yeah. Yeah, there's a a few attempts to... uh
1: make a few little changes it's, it's not really happening yet is it
2: so your host tonight is peter powell who is now three and a half years into his career with the bbc and nearing the peak of his career there he's currently firmly embedded into the drive time slot from half past four to 7 p.m on weekdays at radio one which means he gets to break down the new top 40 in full every tuesday that was important wasn't oh, it it was yeah i've banged many a time off about nipping out to spend it on my lunch break on Tuesday afternoons to get the first news from Gallup. But later on, we're going to hear massive chunks of the new Top 4, which was really important, man, wasn't
3: it? Very important, yeah. I mean, it, let's be honest, 81. I mean, this, for me, was a time before the big emergence of commercial stations on the radio. So it was mm. Radio 1 constantly. And this was a big deal. Yeah. I mean, his voice... Peter Powell's voice is as, as associated with that rundown as it is for me in '81 with his advert for um, Chart Hits Volume One and Two oh, on Ketel, yes. which is a, a big memory <laughs> of power from '81 as well.
2: <laughs> Tonight he finds himself as the meat in a hairy sandwich <laughs> as his show takes over from Travis's afternoon slot and then hands over to Wheels, the hour-long show about motorbikes presented by the living Nasher badge himself. Not only that, but tonight's episode, which is being broadcast right now on Radio 1, features Dave Taylor, the wheelie king himself, putting a new motorcyclist through his paces and giving him tips on how to break into the sport of motorbike racing. A certain (laughs) Peter James Bernard, pal. Uh. Fucking hell. (laughs) All up in your area. (laughs) He's already been lined up for a stint on the Radio 1 Roadshow, including an appearance at Collium Bay in Cornwall, where the advertising in the local press will announce that there's also free access to the pole Naturist Bay. Thank (laughs) God it wasn't Travis's week to do the roadshow. (laughs) Mm. And along with Dave Lee, Travis and Simon Bates, he'll be holding down a summer DJ residency at Tiffany's Ballroom in Blackpool, going head-to-head with a rival discotheque, who will be hosting DJ slots this summer by Martin Shaw, (laughs) Lewis Collins, and Dennis Waterman. (laughs) Taylor, you'd go to professionals disco, wouldn't you?
1: Oh, yeah. Can (laughs) you imagine the calibre of ladies he would be turning up at that?
2: With Cowley at the bar fucking moaning that they're not playing anything ever.
1: (laughs) Yeah, all those ladies either wearing designer jeans or uh, Mm. calf length skirts and kitten heels. Mm. All
2: of whom die before the end of the night to terrorists <laughs> no doubt yeah
1: but you know whatever there'll be another one along in a minute
2: <laughs> by the way chaps do you know who officially opened pole naturist bay in 1971 i found out during my research i was quite delighted Ooh, 71 someone in the entertainment realm
3: reg varney mm. oh your mmm indicates that taylor was close there bob grant no um. Arthur lowe <laughs> <laughs> Freddie Starr. Oh, oh, Jesus. Of course, Christ. it
2: was Freddie Starr. Sadly, he didn't go about as a nudie Hitler with a comedy swastika painted on his bollock. Uh, he was in a nice 70s leisure tracksuit.
1: Uh, right. <laughs> uh, not Freddie Starr, hid my hamster.
2: <laughs> Freddie Starr smuggled my budget. Ugh. This yeah. is Powell's 35th appearance as a host of our favorite Thursday evening pop treats. And he reached the summit of his profession when. When he hosted the 1980 Christmas Day episode and is still the youngest member of a talent pool currently consisting of Richard Skinner, Mike Reed, Tommy Vance, Dave Lee Travis and Jingle Nonso Be. And there's been an attempt by the BBC to place him squarely within the ranks of the dish Only last week, he appeared in the pages of the Sunday Mirror Women's section as that week's action man, posing in the very latest off-the-peg casual wear. Quote, Britain's most popular DJ, Peter Powell, tells me that after three years of having no special girlfriend, he is now in love. Alison is a dancer and model and I'm both possessive and proud of her he says <laughs> I've never been happier and you don't know her she goes to a different school <laughs> how could a guy like Peter aged 29 5 foot 8 inches with sexy dark eyes square jaw and fine brown hair stay unattached for so long answer Peter really stays still long enough for him to catch up mm. he's on radio one every weekday afternoon he's a regular on top of the pops he's forever scurrying around Britain doing live DJ gigs he recently received award for his popularity from Prince Michael of Kent <laughs> what's the baseline for that being more popular than Prince Michael of Kent's missus
4: <laughs>
2: and when he's not working he's playing football Squash, tennis, or sailing, windsurfing, or skiing. But I did manage to pin him down long enough to model his top of the pops among the latest in men's casual fashions. Two turn beige nylon anorak by Adidas from Top Man at Burton's, cotton shirt and stretch denim jeans by Vidal Sassoon from Way In at <laughs> That's a strong look. So, yeah, everything's coming up, pal, but it's the last episode he'll ever present in his 20s. Article in the telly pages of today's Daily Mirror, Hitman Peter turns 30. Disc jockey Peter Powell is trying to grow old gracefully. Peter, who introduces Top of the Pops tonight, will turn 30 on Tuesday. I am facing being 30 like an ostrich with his head in the sand, hoping it'll go away quietly, says Peter. So, chaps, from next week, there will be no presenters in their 20s until they draft in Gary Davis and Pat Sharp at the end of the next year. Oh, dear. Yeah.
3: Gosh end of an era yes i love that
1: article where at the start it said uh so how can a man like this be single he's five foot eight <laughs> 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 he looks like a pre-chewed bolus of bubble gum <laughs> so desperately ingratiating that his face is folding in on itself a mm. oh, tightly folded bud the flowers of evil
3: <laughs> yeah I mean it's weird him turning 30 he's going to be 72 this year I mean he is 72 this year now Peter Powell God, which is yeah. mental um, but he's still looking good at this point he's still um, you know looking mm. like the party crasher killer from the hard way <laughs> he's very very ambitious isn't he Powell Ooh, yes! I mean I read an interesting quote which mm. might have been mentioned on Chart Music before of his early ambitions in this interview that I read, Powell said I've always been interested in business mm. when I was 17 I was a salesman for expanded metal dung passages for piggeries <laughs> it was my dream to be a salesman for ICI, so there you go you know ICI's loss is our Ooh, game Oh, reach for the stars <laughs> yes. and
2: then I noticed somebody across the sky masturbating a pig <laughs>
3: <laughs> and he goes got me into radio one he knows where the bodies are buried does Powell Mm. I mean think about yeah yeah, think about who he represents now particularly right now at this moment that we're recording this podcast Mm. the whole Chiswick Mafia the whole Schofield thing oh yes yeah he knows where the bodies are buried
2: but as far as presentation goes chaps we know that age brings maturity Mm. and we can see that in Powell can't we the poem has been replaced by a sensible haircut and this is no longer the Mr. Wu Hay of 90 Seventy-seven. You know, songs are no longer ace; mm. they're excellent, and yeah. the
1: feet are going to stay on the floor throughout this episode, aren't they? Yeah, but you can tell he's still got his enthusiasm by the way he starts off. Hello, welcome to yet another edition of <laughs> Top of the
4: Pots.
1: <laughs> I like because it has a sort of desperate death haunted world weariness which is a little bit at odds with his upbeat demeanour and Mm. kind of you know he's like a slaughterman smiling ruefully as he (laughs) slots a bolt through the 45th cow brain of the day just (laughs) sealed inside a meaningless endlessly repeating sequence of episodes
3: of Top of the Pops. We'll be there one <laughs> day. It's hard to oh, imagine, yeah. I know. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, he could have looked at his elder peers at Radio 1 and slotted into one of their kind of categories, like DLT, for instance. But he's, I think uh, he's taking cue from Jensen um, in being a, a safe pair of hands at this point. It is weird with Powell, though, isn't it? I mean, he's a
1: man who hasn't aged well. I don't mean personally last time I saw him he you know he was holding up reasonably averagely for yeah. a mm. man with a face that's essentially internal <laughs> um, bundled in like a Brussels sprout um, but then he was an early adopter of what was then called keep fit wasn't mm. he yes yeah, he um, was yeah. what I mean by not aging well is that his legend has grown tatty mm. because mm. he's remembered as a sort of second tier DJ isn't it yeah mm. but he was a huge name at the time but he's not really up there in the collective memory with well-loved figures like travis or bates (laughs) or or mike reed or even gary davis right but at the Mm. same time he's not down in that third tier of cultural amnesia with paul burnett or adrian john or dixie peach or no uh, me, Mark Page, he's on that sort of middle shelf with people like Richard Skinner, yeah, or yeah, yeah. or maybe Diddy David Hamilton, <laughs> the the Tony Gubber of music presentation. <laughs> and with Peter Powell, it's partly because he's not got his own thing. You know, mm. in the eighties, they had music DJs like Peel and and yeah. Janice Long and Rankin Miss P, Robbie Vincent, Andy Kershaw, loathe him or hate him. Mm. Um, and then they had the supposed personality DJs like Steve Wright. but it's the fools who tried to straddle that gap who've actually fallen into it Mm. in the collective memory because nobody thinks about these in-between blokes who on the one hand were entirely image orientated but that image was just hey I'm a regular young guy who quite likes his music it Mm. was just too bland to be memorable over time but back then Peter Powell was huge he was a massive star Mm. I mean he never had the weekday breakfast show but he must have opened more fates and guested at more provincial Dickie Bo Dorman nightclubs than most cunts in history and was considered dishy with his beady eyes and pushy manner and all of that is now gone as though it had never existed Mm. like the contents of a broken hard drive after the heat death of the universe Mm.
2: you can say that but also you can say that he got out in time yeah You know, he was never going to be lumped in with the U-Tree era of Radio 1 DJs because he just said, right, okay, I've done this now, I'm going off to do something else and be even more successful at that. It's
1: true, yeah. Although the thing about Powell as well, when you look back, he does represent a very specific subset of British men from this period, right? It's the kind of bloke who's very well aware that he's now living in the 80s, Mm. even if he's Mm. not quite sure yet what that means uh beyond yeah. having shorter hair and, and straight leg trousers right and <laughs> maybe a tight white t-shirt promoting sandwell valley nature reserve or something <laughs> like <laughs> under the bomber jacket but he's ambitious and he's positive in a way that didn't really exist in the 70s that kind of yeah slightly obnoxious but mm. moderately discreet kind of ambition mm. right like I don't know his politics although I can fucking guess yes. you sense <laughs> that he would not see a contradiction between like the go for it positivity of the jam and the upbeat Mm. vibe of early Thatcherism, Mm. right? Like, he operates Mm. in the cultural sphere, but he never really thinks about what culture is or what it means, like, apart from telling John Peel not to play hip-hop because it was the music of black criminals. (laughs) Yes! (laughs) Because when did they ever make any good music? (laughs) He's got no ideas, but he respects himself for getting on and making it happen. Do you know what I mean? In summary, Mm. he is exactly exactly the kind of person who would describe the record vienna
3: by ultravox as magnificent yes well he's a businessman (laughs) more than a personality in a way Um, I I mean, you get the feeling even through his Radio 1 career that he ultimately what he's doing is networking. Yeah. You know, he he doesn't really want to foster a future career as the kind of voice of Britain like fucking Noel Evans or (laughs) something. I think he just, yeah, uh, he's a businessman who happens to have spent some time in his his youth, in his salad days, doing this, presenting the most popular pop program on television.
1: Yeah, he played his hand very well, didn't he? It's just
3: a hook. Like, nowadays,
1: he's like, hey, remember this face? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like a Brussels sprout. <laughs> he, it, but it's amazing, isn't it, when you look it up the amount of people that he managed, what they yeah, yeah, amusingly called talent management, right? He's mm. managed Simon Cowell, Adam yes. Deck, Philip Schofield mm. and good God, Richard and Judy. yeah yeah. the television of white criminals (laughs) (laughs) but i looked him up at company's house right and it's quite the patchwork quilt his Mm. record there i'm not really a business guy you'll be shocked to hear (laughs) but the list of companies that peter powell has co-founded or been the president of and resigned from that list is longer than the string of a stunt kite. <laughs> One of those stunt kites that somebody else with the same name put their name to.
2: <laughs> Hello, welcome to yet another edition of Top of the Pops. And we got a great show lined up. we got The Who, we've got Roxy Music, we got Duran Duran. And if you can handle that lot, then hopefully you can handle this. Because live on Top of the Pops tonight is Sharon Red and
0: can you handle it?
2: We get hit with the merest flicker of the Top of the Pops white on black logo with a blue square border layered atop each other. A conceit they have been using since August of last year and will continue to use until July of this year. And the strains of the instrumental bit of Can You Feel It by the Jacksons, sadly not on this episode. That cold-open style that they're going for here. Really unsatisfactory. It's brutal. It's got an emergency broadcast hint to it, hasn't it? (laughs) Or back in the day when the adverts came on and the the regional logo would flash up. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's not good, man. You need a theme tune. You need a clarion call to bring all the youth together.
3: Yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, it ties in with what you were saying. The 80s hasn't really started yet.
2: They've decided that a whole lot of love isn't going to cut it in their thrusting new era.
3: But they've not replaced it with anything.
1: No. No, you need a theme tune so you can turn it up and wait for the thunderous footsteps coming down the stairs. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Then the screen fills with Powell in a lemon yellow wind cheetah with the sleeves rolled up, a jazzy blue mustard and wine-striped shirt with the collar turned up, and powder blue slacks. Oh, new sounds,
1: new styles, eh, chaps? powder blue slacks with a thin brown belt. Of course, yes. You've got to have an eye for detail Mm. with this sort of thing. And introducing the next record with some of the slickest, sexiest dance moves ever busted out by a man in a lemon, yellow, yeah, red, please yeah, yeah. mm. It's a bit startling. This convulsion of youthful exuberance from a man dressed like Paul out of ever-decreasing circles. <laughs> <laughs> he tells us we've got a great show lined up
2: and then spoilers half the acts on offer, telling us if we can handle that lot, then hopefully we can handle this. Can You Handle It? by Sharon Red? Born in Norfolk, Virginia in 1945, Sharon Redd was the daughter of a producer at King Records, James Brown's original label. She signed to United Artists in 1968 and put out a few singles before being headhunted a year later by a couple of Australian stage producers who cast her in the Sydney production of Hair. She became an overnight success over there, appearing in adverts for Amoco petrol stations and landing her own TV special. But she, along with other black cast members, had their work visas unrenewed by the Australian Immigration Department and she found herself back in America in the spring of 1971. A year later, she was recruited into Bette Midler's backing singers, The Harlets, and stayed there for six years, during which time she and fellow Harlet Charlotte Crossley popped up on an episode of Rhoda as Johnny Ventura's backup. In 1978, she signed to RCA, and a year later, under the name Front Page, put out the disco single Love Insurance. And by 1980, she had moved to Prelude Records, the New York disco label who had D-Train and Jocelyn Brown on their books. This is her first single release as a solo artist since her cover of Easy To Be Hard from the Hair soundtrack, which got to number 32 in the Australian chart in 19. 69. It entered the chart three weeks ago at number 60, then soared 17 places to number 43. And this week, it's jumped four places to number 33, which has necessitated a big fly across the Atlantic for a Top of the Pops debut. And all dear chaps, it's safe to say that this is the most disastrous welcoming party for an American since that episode of Dad's Army, (laughs) where Captain (laughs) Mannering gets chinned twice. (laughs) Fucking hell before we get into it chaps the first thing that needs to be pointed out is that immediately after introducing this the camera sweeps across the studio floor pal still in vision breaks into a lumbering dad at a wedding dance oh dear he's not doing the running pal just yet but he's more one of those you know them thumb toys or push puppets or whatever hmm. you call them hmm. you know when you've got a zebra or something and you you push it underneath and it flops uh, yeah. well he's dancing like he's a push puppet, and someone's just applied tiny bit of pressure—a
3: mm. flicker. <laughs> but by some distance, he's not the worst dancer. Um, oh no, 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 <laughs> no, no! no, no. But what we see here in the studio, not only from Powell but from the audience, is. There's no other way of putting it apart from in a racist way. Ooh. It's the whitest dancing I have ever seen. Should we talk about the single first? Should yeah, we get that sure, out of the way? Sure, sure.
2: Because that'll take off a minute. Because it's a fucking tune, isn't it?
3: It's a great single, but what we're hearing here is not the single.
2: No, 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 no. <laughs> if you actually bought it as a single or heard it on the radio, you'd get a prime example of New York Post Disco. Oh, and yeah, yeah. You it's- have to listen to the 12-inch special extended version, which is nearly 10 minutes long, and a fucking mint.
3: Mm. The recorded version is this crisp, kind of glittering, I mean, it's perfect. It's one of those early mm. 80s funk tunes, every single detail is perfect. What yeah. we have here is not that.
2: I mean, like most singles of its Elkin era, it would have completely sailed over my head at the time, mm-hmm. you know, that that combination of hardcore funk and show tune flamboyance, but the performance we get Fucking hellfire. (laughs) It's as if Michael Hill's trying to prove a point by lumping together everything that he wants rid of Mm. from Top of the Pops.
3: I mean, I reiterate what we said earlier with regards to plenty of bits in this episode. If you'd have told me this was from 76, come on. It looks like 76. Uh, There seems to be this powerful idea in the 70s in particular that if you give a crowd of young people the task of sitting down and doing an annoying series of hand gestures to do, mm. they'll be delighted. And like mm. cattle they'll join this herd of idiocy. Yeah. And this is what we get here. If we've just talked about the record, we now have to talk, I think, about how the Top of the Pops Orchestra play this record.
2: I thought this was all done by 1980.
3: No, no, no. The Sound of Philadelphia cheese, <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. I mean, it's a typically shonky start, right, before they actually settle into the song. Mm. Um, There's a few bass mistakes and stuff. Mm. The use of the Top of the Pops Orchestra dates it because, simply put, they never really got their heads around disco. No. I mean, we keep saying disco, but what we hear is not disco. No. I mean, the point about disco, whether it's been made by Chic or or whether it's made by ACDC, who I think makes some great disco records, is that the kick drum is a regular thump throughout. And Mm. not to get too musicological, the kick drum, the bass drum, hits not just in between the snare hits, but on each snare hit. That's Mm. really key to disco. The Top of the Pops Orchestra, they play it with a normal... Sort of kick snare pattern and it instantly dates the song. Yes, it dates the song back to the early 70s. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. as ever with the TATP orchestra, you know, it can't help but have that we've had a want these party seven each <laughs> yes. in the green room feel to it as well, you know. So, or it'd be Arctic you,
2: Light by Nub.
3: yeah, yeah, or Breaker. It's a shonky start, but they, they, they make it into a soul slash funk record, not a disco record. Mm. So, it's weird what we're hearing. The big question
1: here. I can't work out what she's singing into. Right. Because she's not holding a mic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she doesn't appear to have one clipped to that weird Mm. bodysuit that she's wearing. And I've never quite seen this before on Top of the Pops. Wherever the microphone is, it's too far from her Mm. mouth. Because the acoustics of the vocal are horrendous. So I can't tell is she singing into like a boom mic off screen, (laughs) like what they would use to record dialogue on a sit. Maybe.
3: Surely not. Do you reckon it was a hastily done sort of pre-recorded version Mm. that she did with the top of the pops orchestra? I
1: thought of that. Yeah. I thought of that, but I don't think so. And I'll tell you why, because obviously it's not the record. It's certainly not the record. (laughs) The record being a perfectly weighted production that sounds like a helicopter shot of some skyscrapers, Mm. (laughs) um, um, as opposed to this, this two on the floor nonsense. Um, so I was looking for any suggestion that it was that and that she'd recorded the vocal earlier while not dancing. But in fact, not only does it look like she's singing live while dancing, mm. it fucking sounds like it mm. too. Because every time she bends off in one direction, the level drops. Right, right, right. So it's very confusing. This clip is up on YouTube, but it's got the record dubbed over, it, of course. Not <laughs> but at least you can say that the audio fits the chaos of the scene. Oh um, god. With all these kids rowing the boat like they're yeah, in yeah. school assembly. <laughs> it's like you might as well have had girls tying plaits into the hair <laughs> of the girl in front. As Sharon red sings about how she's apparently so good in bed it's intimidating (laughs) yes i mean
2: the kids are all sat around on an elongated platform and they're doing a fucking group blockbusters hand jive years before it was such a thing man it's
3: appalling it is appalling there's this particular young lady who i don't want to pick on but she does look like she could be in her mid-60s to be honest with you (laughs) but she's doing it so stiffly and so confusedly and bewilderedly, you know, because mm. th- th- there's, there's finger points involved in this thing that they're getting mm. the kids to do. And the points she does are so fatally just not right on the beat. I mean, it's interesting watching any group of British dancers, to be honest with you, ever, because mm. you can see the people who actually do dance to music. Yeah. <laughs> they've sort of just got it in their shoulders and their groove, mm. you know? But some people are just incapable. I don't know how they live. <laughs> and there's plenty of those in the audience here. Um, it should be mentioned that a small modicum of Daddisfaction is provided by Legs & Co. in the background. Co- yeah, Legs & Co. are there as well. I mean, they are still doing, they're doing that rubbish, um, I've just trodden in dog shit move. Yes. But, um, <laughs> yeah.
2: They're in the Doric chitons again, looking like they're doing a keep fit demonstration before some Christians get fed to the lions. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> and also like legs nearing the end of their working life. Yeah. Mm. Quite literally left on the shelf here oh, for yes. the first right, yeah. time in their lives. Relegated to this distant bookcase thing mm. and then a bit later in the song they're let down from the shelf but they're still not allowed out of their technical area mm, they've mm. got a little painted off bit in the corner <laughs> but, and still having to wear industrial knickers in defiance yeah. of this obsessively upskirting cameraman <laughs> like, why else are they on a raised platform yeah um it must have got tiresome even for game girls like legs and Co. Yeah. Right? in fact this here is the last ever appearance of Pauline Peters who oh. left the legs this week right. to be replaced for the final six months by Anita Chellamar, the right. Doug Yule of Fixed Grin <laughs> hoofy. Actually, no, no. It's more like when Ron Wood joined the creation because right. that was also for a very brief period right at the end. And... Because they're both better known for what they did afterwards. In Ron's case, The Faces and the Rolling Stones. And in Anita's case, Toto Coelho. Oh, Ah, yes. She ate cannibals. Yes. It was incredible. And as a founding member of the Toto Coelho Ultras, (laughs) I am the bloke holding the megaphone with his back to the performance. Um, I won't have anything bad said about it.
2: By this time, Legs & Co are pulling double shifts almost every week, you know, doing their own routine and backing up some band. Mm. When I always assumed it was because, you know, Michael Hurl wanted to jack up the daddy's faction, but now I think, were their contracts on a performance basis and Hull wants them gone as soon as possible?
3: So he's just squeezing maximum value out of them before they're off.
2: Well, instead of saying you signed up for 52 weeks, you signed up to 52 performances.
3: Ah, see, yeah. So
2: we get you in two at a time and uh, knob you off earlier
1: yeah also lest we forget providing a visual contrast to two-man sound
2: of course yes (laughs) serves neither party you know legs and co are being pushed off to the side and you know no one puts legs and co in the corner And meanwhile sharon red she's there slinking about telling everyone she's just the best shag ever Mm. and she's doing it while standing next to lots of younger women
3: yeah there is that in shorter skirts but but to be fair i think sharon is the star here um not just because mm. it's her record. I think she looks great and she's got this great sort of uh, black yes. spangly dress on. She moves great. Her mm. performance background that you mentioned, you know, being in air and things like that is clearly there and she puts it across. I mean, with this lumbering, fuck-awful arrangement um, which has its pleasures, don't get me wrong, like all Top of the Pops Orchestra stuff, it has its interesting, slightly beard-up pleasures but um, yeah, mm. she, she comes through it okay. The audience do not. No.
2: It's a great opportunity for us to see the youth of nineteen eighty one and a fucking out. <laughs> yeah. Dear me. They're dressed so appallingly that if he had had the time, Steve Strange would be standing in their own front doorways and refusing them entrance <laughs> to the outside world. No, sorry, this is not for you.
3: There's a couple of little punkers though in there, isn't there? There's there's like, yes, there there's are, like a yes. few dotted about and they're actually some of the best dancers to be honest with you. Yeah. The punks that are dotted in this audience they, they provide some nice sort of moodiness later on in this episode as well. But yeah, is there anything more dispiriting than seeing british children forced into the block butts of the fucking dance um,
2: it's well cheggers plays pop isn't it yeah, yeah yeah i mean they should have just given them an inflatable to jump up and down on
1: <laughs> yeah i mean in fairness nobody's gonna look cool doing that school assembly no. but i mean no, no. rarely has top of the pops felt more like a church hall dance and sausage sizzle which at heart <laughs> is what it always wanted to be completely mm. stranger danger but without the sausages, which yes. were the best bit. <laughs> you know when you watch these old top of the pops is on a downloaded file and it's straight from the bbc vt so sometimes at the end they run on past where the tv broadcast yes. cut it so after the mm. credits you yeah, get the yeah. whole of the closing song with the audience dancing and then at the end mm, when mm. it stops you hear the floor manager barking at the kids to leave the studio and it really <laughs> yeah. does slice through the The jollity, like an oxyacetylene torch. Like, you're you're supposed to be at the Mm. greatest party in the world. And then the second the music stops, some old blokes bellowing, like, thank you for coming. Now, please leave the studio instantly. (laughs) And it's a bit of a jolt, you know. Ladies and gentlemen, you now have nine seconds to vacate the building before we uncage the hyenas. (laughs) They will be laughing. (laughs) You will not. Good luck, children. This clip has got that same atmosphere but while the fucking show is going on Mm.
3: what needs to change and I think Hell realises it pretty soon is that this thing of piling the stage with the kids, yeah. that's got to change for a fucking start off. I mean, if you're going to rebuild a set and make it like a nightclub, put the kids out in the nightclub, put zoo mm. cunts up on the platforms, and yeah, just don't let shit like this happen again. Because even though the record itself, even in this iteration, is not a no. bad start to the show, the staging yeah. of it's pretty awful. Shaman does come through okay, though.
2: Apologies for repeating myself, Pop Crazy Youngsters, but when we covered Department S in our live show last year, i quoted their interview in smash hits in may of this year when they were on top of the pops and i'm quoting it again seven o'clock on a wednesday evening and in studio three at the television center a hundred teenagers are milling about beneath the white arc lights of top of the pops Flick colbert the american choreographer of legs and co gets up on stage to tell them what comes next and how to dance to it The next one's by Department S, and that's a real Blitzkid number. I want some intense, meaningful movements. None of this silly disco stuff. So, yeah, by this time, Mm. Flick Colby's telling the kids what to do and telling them they've got a pain sweat right now. Because by this point, Hull has clearly had enough with the kids just standing there or chatting to the mates about lads and shoes and what they like the look of in Chelsea Girl at the moment or making rabbit ears behind the mates' back while Dean Freeman's trying to emote and has enlisted Sergeant Major Colbert. And by the look of this, it's an experiment that's doomed to failure and zoo are imminent. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Yeah, those kids here, you can see, are just ashamed of this enforced jollity and they just don't want any part of it.
2: The most shocking thing to my mind is the return of the top of the Pops Orchestra and whatever the Maggie Stredder singers are calling themselves these days. And, you know, it's clear from the first note that they can't handle it. <laughs> no. This might do for Seaside Special or the Yorkshire TV Disco Dancing Championship, but, you know, Sharon's been poorly served here.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. She has. If I wanted to go and get it together, I'd
3: have gone on get it together. Yeah. Or Wheel Tappers and Shunters or something. Oh, can you imagine? <laughs>
2: So the following week, Can You Handle It nudged up two places to number 31 somehow and got no further. The follow up, Love Is Gonna Get You failed to chart, but she roared back in 1982 with Never Give You Up getting to number 20 in November of that year. 10 years later, DNA, the Tom's Diner remix hitmakers, collaborated with Red on an update of "Can You Handle It," which got to number 17 in February of 1992, sparking what should have been a comeback, but she died of pneumonia 3 months later at the age of 46.
1: Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to Bluenile.com. That's Bluenile.com.
0: Hey, local calls, our audience, legs and Co. Sharon and Can You Handle It on Top of the pot? Okay, he's got an album coming out of the same name as the hit single. His name? Shaggy Stevens. And this old house. This children. wants you wife. How?
2: after listing everyone responsible for the last performance, lies to the kids about a new LP that has actually been out for months before throwing us into this old house by shaking Stevens. Yes, he added a G. Disgusting (laughs) behaviour. Simon Bates wouldn't do that. Simon Bates knows when to snip off a G. (laughs) Born in Evansville, Texas in 1908, Carl Hamblin was the son of a preacher man who founded the Evangelical Methodist Church. In 1931, he relocated to California and became the host of the radio show Family Album, whilst nurturing a career as a country singer-songwriter. And in 1934, he became the first artist signed up to the American subsidiary of Decca. He rapidly became the most popular radio personality in Los Angeles, but the fame got to him and he became a rabid pisshead and gambler. But in 1949, he turned up at a Billy Graham crusade in LA, an event which Graham later claimed was a turning point in his own popularity and bank balance. But when Hamblin subsequently tried to ban beer adverts off his radio show, he got the sack. In 1954, according to legend, Hamblin was on a hunting expedition with his mate John Wayne when they came across a dilapidated hut in the mountains which contained one mangy dog and a human corpse, which inspired him to write this song, which got to number two in the Billboard country chart. Later that year, it was covered by Rosemary Clooney and put out as a B-side to "Hey There, which got to number one in America. But when it was released over here, the sides were flipped around and this Old house became her first UK number one in December of 1954. The song lay moldering for a quarter of a century until it was recorded by the Kentucky band NRBQ, who recorded it rockabilly-style for their 1979 LP Kick Me Hard. And it's this version that has been covered by the ever-victorious, Iron Willed, highest incarnation of the revolutionary comradeship of heterosexual rock and roll. (laughs) It's a follow-up to Shooting Gallery, which only got to number 47 in October of 1980 and is the third cut from his third LP Marie Marie which came out five months ago. It entered the chart at number 64 three weeks ago then soared 35 places to number 29. He was immediately invited into the top of the pop studio which helped it soar another 22 places to number 7. This week it's jumped another five places and stands at number two in the chart. And here's a special filmed broadcast from Overway Cottage, a dilapidated coach house in Nountain Park near Bury St Edmunds, so Shaky can elaborate on his five year plan to address the social housing crisis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Powell fucked up there when he said it was from an album that was coming out because Epic have retitled Marie Marie to this old house in the wake of this
3: becoming a hit. Right, right. Yeah. You know what? I don't think I've ever... Have I ever talked about Shaky before on chart music? I'm not entirely sure I have, which is remarkable, really. That is. Yeah.
1: Because for the rest of us, it's got to the point now where every time he comes on, it's like your brother-in-law's drop-round without texting first. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, hello. Like an easy familiarity, <laughs> but without a great deal of affection. And yet, if you saw him in trouble in the street, you'd feel duty bound to help out. Yeah,
3: not that Shaky would ever find himself in trouble in the street. No, no. no but he was everywhere in my life in '81. Ooh. I think this video was probably my biggest first memory of, of Shaky, and and no. I think the start of my liking of him. He's got that insanely good-looking dad. Dave Bartram look. He, he's even he's <laughs> even better looking. And that jet black coiffure is all important. But in 81, he's mm. everywhere, you know? I mean, yes, he's yes. On, there's O'Connor. He's on Cannon and Ball, on Swap Shop. I mean, two of my most serpentine memories of him is that he's on Jim Will Fix It. Oh, yes. Yeah. Two appearances really stuck in my head. I mean, there may well be more of them, but the, the two ones that really stuck in my head. There was one where two kids just right in and they want to dance with him basically and that's it mm. jim can you fix it so they dance with him doing this old house and you know the jingle noncer tells the little girl that she's very pretty and the little boy that he's a great mover um it's a bit grisly but there's a bizarre faint memory i have that perhaps a pop trade youngster can confirm or find uh, uh, where a girl she wanted to stay in a posh boarding school for the night. That was her wish, right. right? So she goes, she does the kind of posh boarding school stuff. They have a school disco to Japanese boy, actually. <laughs> right. But then later on, there's just this really bizarre moment where, where all the girls are in the dorm, you know, waiting for lights out. And um, Shaky just turns up to kind of check if they're all okay. No! <laughs> and, yeah. No, you dream that, Neil, surely. No, I, I swear down, I have not dreamt that. Shaky <laughs> just turns up, he turns up in the dorm, he checks they're all okay, he doesn't tuck him in or anything, but um, they're all sort of very excited to see him. Shaky of the dorm, man. <laughs> it sounds like a
2: stripping ginty or something.
3: <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's appearances like that, that obviously by 81, have uh, turned him into a household name, giving him the commercial momentum to make this a big hit. Mm. After quite a long journey, obviously, you know, He's been doing rock and roll revivalism since the since the days of fucking Sha-Nana, really. He was the only other guy yeah. doing
2: it. He's Shane A.
3: indeed, in, <laughs> Indeed. But in the late 70s, you know, he's actually... He's kind of cool. John Lydon, at the end of an interview at the height of the Sex Pistols fame says he's off to see shaking stevens that night in that late 70s period danny baker at the time wanted to call a kind of punk versus rockabilly summit to diffuse tensions and he wanted shaky (laughs) there you know as the sort of boot trust boot trust stevens there but i mean (laughs) all the tv appearances obviously make him way more mainstream and he's hitting right this year you know you've got the stray cats in the charts even Mm. alvin Stardust has a hit again this year with with yes. you know rockabilly revival in full swing and he's the perfect idol really for the for the sort of under nines you know <laughs> so you know yeah. i mean if i was old enough in 81 to feel spiritually behind new pop his presence this kind of retrograde presence probably would have angered me but um mm. no i i loved him and this song as you, as you point out i mean you know now sort of At our age, everything we watch or hear sounds like death. You know, even a Centre (laughs) part advert. But I mean, this this is a this is a kind of song about death, and it's quite macabre in a way. But as an eight year old kid, I just thought he had a bit of a knackered house, and he needs to fix it (laughs) up.
2: This is the first opportunity we've had to actually look at a Shaking Stevens video, right? Which was the second one he ever made after Marie Marie. And you know, by 1981, chaps, the promo video seen as an opportunity for an artist to expand upon their creative manifesto and harness the elements of multimedia to round out their artistic statements so what does shaky do here
3: he sings it in front of an old house
2: yeah he starts with him leaping from the veranda over a camera mm. giving the audience a tantalizing denim upskirt shots mm. and then there's a bit of panther like jiggling about in front of this dilapidated house until he seizes the means of production and drives the acts of revolutionary socialism into the rotting stump of capitalism
1: <laughs> <laughs> they really missed a trick though they should have stayed true to the spirit of this song and put a corpse inside the old house
4: yeah. <laughs> and his dog
1: still stood there Guarding the door mm. bloke dressed up as John Wayne
2: and then eating his face at the end of it
1: yeah mm. the terrible thing about that story is the fact that the dog was still alive yeah suggests that the bloke only died recently mm. which in a way is more creepy than if he'd been there two years it's yeah, like, you know, when you're going down a B road in the country somewhere and you see an overturned car in the ditch and you just assume it's been left abandoned there for days. Mm. Uh, when, in fact, for all you know, it could have gone off the road 90 seconds ago just yeah. before you came around the corner and the wheels might only just have stopped spinning. <laughs> but, yeah, they don't do it. They don't do it. There's a corpse in an armchair and a starving
3: dog behind the green door. (laughs) (laughs) No, instead, his mates turn up, don't they?
2: There's like a brotherhood of man foursome who've Mm. just walked out of a case (laughs) catalogue. And it cuts back to shaky giving him a lean and hungry
3: look while
2: Mm. still clapping, of course. And, you know, to my mind, the video starts to take on sinister video (laughs) nasty-like connotations. (laughs) This surly youth brandishing an axe and four people come walking along all happen couple mm, mm. it it yeah, never ends yeah. well does it
1: <laughs> no and it looks like a video nasty as well yes it does because of yeah. the strange way it's lit yeah because it's not shot on video, it's shot on 16 millimetre film, which is less forgiving in gloomy conditions. Mm. So on some of these shots, there's a, an eerie glow mm. with a very dark shadows behind. Because it was obviously such a miserable day that by the time they were filming shaky posing upstairs, in the old house yes by the windowpane he says he's not gonna mend yeah. uh, there wasn't enough light so they've had to turn a big arc light on him and it creates that slightly unearthly post-apocalyptic look mm. but it's cheap lighting so it gives it the feel of a very low budget horror film yeah Halloween. <laughs> um,
2: blood on white shoes
1: <laughs> Also aggravated by the fact that these days, all the copies of Top of the Pops in circulation come from these supposed restorations done by a private citizen, which look like they've just gone through one of those free Photoshop filters, Mm. because you can't restore or upscale top of the pops to hd because they were made on videotape which is a standard definition medium and even stuff shot on film like this has been telecined onto video so there is no hd information that is it's not there at source so (laughs) the confused computer just smooths everything out as best it can and it just sharpens the edges and flattens the shadows and you end up with all the detail wiped out yeah it destroys the image that's there especially small areas of detail like people's faces to the point of it being disturbing. (laughs) So when Shakey's catalogue model friends come down the path to join his fun at the Mm. old house, Mm. it looks like Silent Hill on the PS1. You look at a (laughs) screenshot of their faces or the concave caverns of Lovecraftian horror where their faces (laughs) were it's fucking horrible but it's also an interesting lesson in photogenia because these ordinary looking extras who are all sort of blandly pleasant looking Hmm. you put them through the faux upscaling process they come out looking like abattoir sweepings (laughs) whereas shaky's own face has been subjected to the same process Mm. of simplification and approximation and when you wipe all the detail out of his face he just ends up looking even more like his own viz cartoon (laughs) he looks great (laughs) so maybe in the same way that the secret of a memorable and distinctive animated character is that they should be instantly recognisable in silhouette Mm. maybe the secret of being a late 20th century pop icon is having the kind of face that becomes stronger and more distinctive the more degraded and messy the image becomes Mm. with the passing of time over generations of cheap reproduction Mm. and this is why 40 years on everyone's still talking about shaking stevens (laughs) (laughs) not that you'd ever associate shaking stevens with the words cheap reproduction
3: you understand (laughs) the thing is that sinister thing you identified in the video Sort of tipped me the wink as a kid that, yeah, this song's perhaps not About just fixing up an old house. But there was there was always something sinister about Shaky, and I Mm. think that was part of his appeal. And I don't mean sinister in a bad way. Who's he gonna spring upon next? Well there's that He's already taken down (laughs) Maid It could be you. But you never got the feeling that you know it it, no matter what chaff he was on, like if he was on Cheggers plays pop or something, you Mm. didn't think oh yeah, Shaky's gonna go off and hobnob with cheggers now. No No. Cheggers is gonna go and do whatever he's doing, which probably, you know, is, is completely innocent and full of bonhomie the shaking Stevens who knew what home he was going back to mm. <laughs> he was kind of he had this sort of mystery to him and, and consequently yeah I mean this song it is a song about death and uh, of course as a kid you don't quite get that the black door of death doesn't loom large in your consciousness no. at that age because it just seems so far away mm. um, the lyrics confuse me a little bit you know growing up in an old people's home the line about not having time to fix the shingles really medically confuse me <laughs> but, 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 but overwhelmingly as a kid this was just a simple fun song to sing and dance to and the jauntiness of the arrangement of course helps that yeah but so did this video i didn't quite pick up the sinister overtones at the time now watching it i can't believe i didn't because it is an unsettling watch.
2: So after the axe bit, there's a series of cuts where he points at things that are in the song. So, Mm. you know, thanks to Shaky, I found out what a shingle was long before I should have done. (laughs) And then he leaps from the top window to the ground, ready to stalk his prey, who we later see trapped in the attic, being forced to sing out the window, presumably in a vain cry for help. (laughs) (laughs) And then Shaky finds a baseball on the floor. And I did look at it hard. And it
3: is a baseball it's too odd for it not to have just been there and they thought hey that's great let's use it it's American yeah hey Shaky you like American stuff <laughs>
2: who's got a baseball in Barry St Edmunds <laughs> <laughs> you know a baseball bat possibly but n- not a ball mm. and then he picks the baseball up and he tosses it from hand to hand and then he turns around and just lobs it skyward yeah fucking hooligan Shaking <laughs> Stevens has thrown a baseball over a house what have you done
1: someone's greenhouse paying the price for that mm. Mm.
2: there's a happy end Of sorts because the Brotherhood of Man types are let out into the front yard and they instantly transmogrify into 13 people, including a child, which leads me as a viewer to believe that Shaken Stevens is actually the leader of a cult who have taken up squatters' rights in the countryside, which is, Mm. you know, which is nice. No one's died (laughs) yet. But yeah, going back to the song, Neil, because the original version by Stuart Hamblin, it is your bog standard religious ramble, Mm. you know, Mm. doesn't matter if you're poor and you're your living arrangements are killing you because, you know, Jesus has prepared a new build with all mod cons in heaven for you. Yeah, yeah. But like all good benevolent dictators, the man of denim, as we know him as, has painted all that bollocks out of the picture, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And that's partly because he delivers the songs in an extremely mush mouth manner, like he was eating a sausage cob. But he also alters the lyric in the chorus. You know, because Stuart Hamblin says, I'm a-getting ready to meet the saints. Yeah, yeah. Rosemary Clooney sang he's a getting ready to meet the Saints. But Comrade Shaker, he sings, she's a getting ready to meet the Saints, which implies that it's a house that's going to die and ascend to the Barrett
1: estate in the sky. Or he's taking his daughter to a meet and greet at Southampton Football Club.
2: (laughs) Yeah, because like you, Neil, I just thought Shaker's going, oh, I'm shaking Stevens. this house is shit. I'm going to buy a new one. That's it. A denim house. Yeah,
3: it's had its day. It's had a good innings. Let's move on and get Mm. on the property ladder, is my kind of overwhelming message from the
1: song yeah or a meet and greet at the tour of the this perfect day
3: hitmaker.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like, is it hack to say this right like, i don't know but to me it's perfect whatever this song's actually about it's perfect that the man who took these lyrics to number one Mm. went on to be a landlord. Mm. Now, he should absolutely have had this as the voicemail on whichever number he gave to his tenant. (laughs) He just left his phone permanently switched off, so he's impossible to contact. He just goes, hang on, time to fix this Like all fucking landlords. (laughs) Yeah, just like a normal landlord, but more musical. Except that in this case... He ain't got time to fix the shingles or the Mm. floor or the boiler because he's getting ready to meet the (laughs) Saints rather Mm. than because he's getting ready to go to Alicante for three weeks again.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So why is Shakin' Stevens so popular in 1981? 1981
3: of all years. Look, two things I think, right? He's massively good looking. Two, Mm. and and perhaps I'm overestimating this, but I also detect this in a later record. The power of the Grease soundtrack should never be underestimated. Mm. Things that sound 50s-ish but have a modern production are going to hit big. Yeah, because yeah. it's just lodged in people's consciousness so much. So, so yeah, I I I think that might have something to do with it. Mm. Plus, he's ubiquitous. He is fucking everywhere. He's he's on, yeah. he's, he's appearing on everything. So it's, it's difficult to avoid him.
2: He's generation straddling, isn't he oh, yeah. yeah.
3: I think the only people who sort of hated shaking Stevens at this point were fierce. Optimist advocates of new pop who probably would have seen this as shamelessly retrograde and worthless Mm. but for the rest of us yeah it's just a fun record with a very good looking man singing it he was ubiquitous he was the subject of
1: one of ronnie corbett's best jokes of course oh ronnie corbett was talking about something that had scared him, and he said i haven't been so nervous since i stood next to shaking stevens in the gents (laughs) (laughs) which if you don't get that joke What it's saying is, he's suggesting the image of Ronnie Corbett being showered with urine Mm. (laughs) as an uncontrollably gyrating Welshman (laughs) pissing like a horse, (laughs) insists on standing right next to him at the urinal, despite the fact that, like an unmanned garden hose, his penis is flapping around everywhere Mm. because of the shaking Mm. and is sousing the the pint-sized... Discursive storyteller in gallon after gallon of 50s revivalist piss. And Ron is just standing there with waves of piss dripping down the lenses of those iconic black frame mm. glasses, like. Not like the windscreen of a Mercedes in a car wash or the <laughs> rainy windows of a Glaswegian tenement in his Scottish homeland, ringing out his Lyle and Scott v-neck into the sink, you <laughs> know. What, imagine if it all went in his mouth and all yeah, that? Oh, gross. I should say by the way I did go and check that joke before I quoted it to make sure I got the wording right because like all writers or people who call themselves writers I know there's nothing worse than someone quoting your work especially the jokes and getting it just slightly wrong Mm -hmm. after you spent a very long time getting it precisely right such is the insatiable perfectionism of the creative genius you know Oscar Wilde was once supposedly asked Oscar what did you do this morning and he said I removed a semicolon from one of my poems, and they said, How did you spend the afternoon? And he said, Putting it back in again. Yeah. This is what it's like. We wouldn't know anything about this stuff, of course, but. I guarantee you that whoever wrote that joke for Ronnie Corbett will have laid in bed tossing and turning flipping that sentence backwards and forwards in their mind for hours mm. looking for the perfect structure really earning their three piece sweet and cocktail mm. cabinet <laughs> and this is why comedy writers are paid such outrageous sums of money mm. because you get the rhythm of the sentence wrong and you lose the gag everything rests on linguistic precision it's like a surgeon your mirth in their hands mm. just one slip and you've got a pancreas hitting the floor with a wet slap. Mm. It's terrible. Can you imagine the repercussions if Eddie Large had ever told a joke that wasn't funny? <laughs> yeah. That would have been that. Career <laughs> over. You would have to go back to living off Sid Little's dinner money.
3: And it needs saying by the way, this old house, right? I think this is best shaky. This is best shaky for me. Mm. It's his best one. <laughs> right. Not that I'm going to sit around listening to it. But um, in terms of getting those jitters in your legs when you're eight years old, this is the one.
2: Oh, I think this was the single that just turned me squarely against shaking. Right, right. I removed myself from all that Ted shit. And here it was again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when it got to number one, oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah, but your age difference, Al, that's the thing, you were sick of him by now.
2: Complete age difference, because while I was watching Top of the Pops, if I was allowed to watch it in the living room, this would come on and me dad would be like, oh, fucking hell, yeah, finally, <laughs> finally something good, and the, and the knees would start going and everything, yeah, and yeah. it's
1: like, oh, God. Yeah, I can imagine it's not sitting well with a young mod. Yeah, yeah. No. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. no. in it, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in no escape either. You know, I mentioned earlier that episode of Summertime special Mm, that I watched. And Shakey's on that, right. Mm. And it's genuinely fascinating because For a start, he's introduced by Rod Hull and Emu, but, (laughs) alas, from a safe distance. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Yeah, We don't don't get to see what would have become the featherweight title bout of early 80s light (laughs) entertainment. (laughs) But also, because Shakey performs a live version of this old house. Oh, yes, I've heard that. The Summertime Special Band, yeah, who make the the top of the Pops Orchestra sound like Booker T and the MG. Yes, (laughs) Um, (laughs) they do. And he's got the most unnaturally twinkly eyes ever seen and he doesn't seem to be able to remember the words very well yes admittedly this old house does have three verses but he's been singing it all year every day mm. over and mm. over again and yet there's moments where he just seems to be doing what you do when you're mm. walking around your flat singing a song out loud yeah. and you can't quite remember how it goes so you just make some noises with your mouth <laughs> that are similar <laughs> phonetically like the greatest ever example of this being uh, Jimi Hendrix's version of All Along the Watchtower yeah. which is a track I listen mm. to quite a lot because in East London there's always a low flying police helicopter overhead <laughs> and the only way to make that noise sound good is to put on all along the watchtower and pretend you're in the nam Um, (laughs) but he seemingly recorded that song without knowing the word west nam which which when you're doing a dylan cover is bordering on mischief but you can hear him he goes uh none will ever on the mine nobody of it is worth Uh, it's just (laughs) gibberish but on that record by the first guitar break nobody cares right but when no. it's shaky mm, smoldering mm. into the camera and he's going <laughs> i mean i'm all for i had lips right but i think with this song you're on a bound to stick to the text mm. lest you mm. spoil that mood of of john wayne in a bothy staring <laughs> at a corpse in yeah. an armchair and a starving dog because that's what the kids want right yeah john wayne big leggy himself, indeed got off his horse, drank his milk, <laughs> looked deep into his horse's eyes. Well, no, he could only see one of them, actually, because he was standing round the side. <laughs> so he gazed into the deep black intelligence of that one eye, like a snooker ball embedded in a veiny blanket. <laughs> and he turned to Stuart Hamblin, and he said, Stu... Not only do I believe in white supremacy and the ostracization of gay men, but you know elephants, <laughs> cute little baby elephants. I say, fuck them. <laughs> fuck them up the trunk and drink your milk. And then spring arrived and they both went home. It was one of the defining moments. <laughs> you might almost say iconic moments mm. in rock and roll history. And without that history this song is almost meaningless
3: yeah. yeah I mean look but the thing is with Shaky what the, what's crucial to me with Shaky in this period is he has the appeal of, a, of almost a cartoon because he's impervious to analysis as a child mm. you don't look at Shaky and think oh I know the person behind that yeah or I know the background behind that he's just fully formed Utterly impervious to analysis, never really revealing anything about himself in anything that I was exposed to. Mm. So he couldn't be demystified. Look, I'm not saying he's a bewitching kind of spell. <laughs> it's shaking Stevens we're talking about, but there was no sort of. Um, background to him do you know what I mean I mean not that I knew about as an eight-year-old mm. you just got the idea that yeah he was on all these TV shows but that didn't demystify him because you just got the feeling that afterwards he went on being Shaking Stevens he just walked around being Shaking Stevens yes. in his life and and uh, yeah. Yeah, that's really important as jumping as a kid. off things exactly yeah. that's really important as a kid just
2: climbing up things and then jumping off them <laughs> it would take him half an hour to get to the shops because he would have to jump on things and climb up. Yeah, Pioneer of parkour. But no, you're on to something, Neil. Because you know, out of all the mock and roll acts of the seventies and early eighties, Shake is the only one who plays it without the slightest trace of an element of humour. Hmm. You know, hmm. Show Waddy Waddy never took themselves seriously. Neither did Darts or Rocky Sharp and the Replays, or you know, even Coast to Coast, yeah. who are currently at number five, but sadly not in this episode. But no shaky he's he's not joking is it? no
3: he takes his bubble with him you know everywhere he goes and, mm. and it never gets punctured and that that's really the appealing. mask never slips exactly. yeah so. grown more serious with age as well have you
1: heard his new song no i oh, haven't yeah.
3: i heard it is it is it ace
1: no it's called <laughs> all oh. you need is greed it's a mm. it's is a, it's a like, condemnation of uh of today's money focused culture you know Mm. maybe nowadays the shaking is largely involuntary but (laughs) the social conscience is still glowing white hot you know Mm. it sounds Mm. like a brian adams 12 inch extra track right it's nice that he gives a fuck i suppose and what a thrill Mm. to be lectured on greed by a buy to let landlord yes invigorating
3: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but it shows how he's not been forgotten because there was a lot of excitement about that, yes. wasn't there? You know, about him coming back. Yeah. I've detected more excitement about the new Shakin' Stevens single than, like, I don't know, Susie and the Banshees going on the road. Mm. It, it's, you know, people are, oh, wow. Yeah. He's yeah. back. Wet leg, wet who? <laughs> There's only one leg I'm interested in,
1: and it's going.
2: and yes Neil it is only March but you know there is going to be a whole lot of shaking going on in 1981 especially during what the kids are going to be calling the summer of Shaker, because he's going to be the focal point of Let's Rock which is Jack Good's latest attempt to do Oh Boy Again an 18 part series made by ATV in Birmingham for American television it's already been out in America and God knows how they reacted to it to it, but it'll <laughs> launch on ITV in July on Saturday nights, featuring Shaker, Alvin Stardust, Joe Brown, Lulu, Den Hegate, and all the original Ted singers that are mm. still alive. Have you seen
3: that? I have, and and you know what you were Fuck saying about me. You know what you were saying about not smirking. That's mm. the thing. That's what Mark shaky is different. Because a lot of people on that show, especially Joe Brown, yeah. um, smirks their way. Oh, it's fucking awful, that program, man. Mm. It's a headache, that show. It never stops. It starts... Yeah. And it's just a racket for about 20 minutes. And yeah, it's horrible. Starts off with a racket and then here comes some
2: more racket (laughs) with some other old bloke. Yeah, yeah. But Shaky Man, he puts himself about. There's one scene where, um, I can't remember what the song was, because he didn't do his own songs on that. But there's one scene where he's doing his pieces and he's in front of this enormous jukebox that's got a record player on the top. Mm. And you see Shaky going up this absolutely fucking massive ladder you know the the, mm, the mm. type of ladder you they the use in a studio to change the lights goes up to the top of there holding this massive cardboard record yeah you just look at it and you just go health and safety anyone
3: yeah yeah but he doesn't give a fuck man no he doesn't it's about rock and roll does he not jump off in
1: slow motion
2: No, sadly not. But the standout moment of that series, because there is a compilation of it on YouTube Mm. and in the video playlist, they have the rocking shades being joined by the cast and audience for a rousing version of the 1958 Jesse James song, South's Gonna Rise Again, complete with fucking Confederate flags aplenty. Oh,
3: God, man.
2: Including one massive one that comes down and obscures about half the audience. And the audience are brandishing pro rockabilly banners in the same font as the ones that the kids used to hold up in Tiswas. Oh,
1: dear. If
2: Chris Tarrant organised a Ku Klux Klan rally, this is what it'd look like.
3: <laughs> Maybe it means South Wales, mm-hmm. yeah? That clearly must have been a massive influence on Bobby Gillespie and Primal Scream.
2: Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anything else to say, chaps?
1: Yeah, I'm afraid.
3: Of course there is. It's shake it. So, yeah. uh...
1: Neil, you know you said you didn't really know anything about Shakin' Stevens. No, no, I don't. Can I, I, I'll fill in some of that background, because I've recently been privileged to read this book, the intriguingly titled Shakin' Stevens, um, which is a paperback biography right. published by Star Books, ever the mark of quality, mm. in 1983, written by Paul Barrett, Shaky's former manager. Ooh. Ooh, Paul Barrett. Shaking Goldman, (laughs) with whom Shaky parted ways roughly around the exact moment he hit the big time. And it turns out... Isn't he his brother as well? It's not. It's the name spelt differently. Uh, It turns out... He's exactly the right man to have written this book because not only does he have access to all those early hard scrabble stories and insider tales from the sunsets tour van, mm. he was clearly a pivotal figure in shaking Stevens' life yeah. because we can see that while shaky was being managed by Paul, he was a bit of a rough diamond, right. but essentially a nice simple lad from South Wales who liked rock and roll, liked to drink. Like the ladies, wasn't above causing a bit of mischief from time to time. Mm. And then as soon as he split from Paul, he immediately turned into the world's biggest cunt. Now <laughs> that might just be a coincidence, <laughs> but surely it's far more likely that Paul's steadying hand is what made the difference. And Shaky <laughs> was led astray by his subsequent, much more high powered and far more successful manager, mm. who if this book is to be believed is also a complete bitch. Um, <laughs> well, very sad what happened to him i now understand um, now you can gauge how carefully proofread this book was by the fact that in the course of its 150 pages paul hmm. misspells the names of jimmy hendrix the savile theater <laughs> hanoi pedal steel guitar adrian henry that's all right mama by arthur big boy crudup Arthur Big Boy Crudup, the <laughs> town of Bastard in Sweden, Willfully, really, <laughs> I think that one. Uh, hound dog, no, espresso. You
3: hound dog.
1: It, he didn't put one, W into that. No, he spelled it as one word: H O U N D O G. no no! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Clark Kent, Muff Winwood. And, and so on and so on I mean <laughs> there are some revelations in here right like the fact mm-hmm. that shaky is actually a natural blonde no you know that did you yes it's true or that his status as comrade shaky is really reflected commitment from Paul Barrett yes. and well, some of the right, sunsets mate. who were proper commies and organized all those CPGB benefits but what's most interesting are the little details like how he wouldn't let his wife come to the pub with him quote as her more equality-minded contemporaries might have insisted upon, mm. <laughs> but sometimes he would take her out on a drive around local social clubs and leave her literally locked in the car. Oh no! Him.
2: What, with a bag of crisps and a of coat with his straw in it yeah
1: yeah, yeah
2: there's a the travel mastermind see you in a bit
1: <laughs> yes yes Im and Paul Barrett went in to organise gigs with the managers of the social clubs and that's the only time she was allowed out of the house Jesus um,
2: you ain't gonna leave this house no longer <laughs>
1: <laughs> there's also that story that we've already covered on this podcast where they play Kenneth Tynan's daughter's birthday yes. party and shaky cups off with a certain flame haired Irish yes. authoress and on the first ever episode of question time now (laughs) fuck i wouldn't necessarily have this author down as a rock expert no here's a passage from page 51 it was early november brackets 1969 when john lennon appeared at a peace festival in toronto wearing a white drape suit and playing a couple of rock and roll numbers it reached the ears of the rock fans in england as something of a joke john lennon had never before expressed a love for their music <laughs> right okay and i'm not 100 percent sure about his assessment that if the soul of elvis flew anywhere after his death it surely would have flown into the young shaking stevens <laughs> or even that shaking stevens is he exists as a phenomenon however he got there is a matter for the academics to debate he doesn't particularly care Mm,
2: that's where we come in exactly yeah
1: you're too (laughs) kind paul but i love most the actual transitional moment on page 119 when Shaky has found success playing Elvis in the West End mm. show, which was his big break, and suddenly Paul, who's been narrating this story very sympathetically the mm. whole time, always taking Shaky's side, suddenly becomes a third party being quoted by name in his own book. Right. <laughs> and it's a neat postmodernist touch, but yeah. right? it's a little bit jarring. Um it says to Paul that last gig with shaky had been a huge relief quote i waved goodbye to years of acting as nursemaid nanny pimp and official nose wiper that night he says and after that all bets are off, right? We're told about Shaky becoming a horrible, spoilt man-baby monster. Mm. We hear about Shaky having a piss against Marty Wilde's house. No! Yeah, while the young Kim Wilde is inside. No! Oh, Yeah. Shaky being a complete prick about owing people money. Oh. Shaky moving into his new house and immediately sawing down all the ancient firs and elders in the garden oh. because he didn't like trees. <laughs> um, and
3: he killed some uh, puppies whilst doing that presumably.
1: Seriously. <laughs> and best of all, the night that. The boy playing young Elvis in the show...
2: Oh, yeah, who was the host of Let's Rock, let's remember.
1: Oh, yeah, under the unlikely stage name GBH. Yes. Yeah, one night... He dropped out with illness and his understudy appeared instead. Right. And despite the nerves or whatever, the young lad did really well, mm-hmm. was congratulated by everyone and then received a summons to the stars dressing room mm-hmm. where shaky, very drunk, started screaming at him, don't you ever do that again. You were imitating me out there. <laughs> to which the lad pointed out that he, in fact, he was imitating Elvis. Uh, and shaky shouted at him don't deny it you are moving your legs like me that's what i do before being physically held back as the child is bundled out of the dressing room. Um, And then, until finally, the last chapter of this book is just flat-out bitching, like the water temperature (laughs) has been slowly turned up, and now suddenly we're being (laughs) boiled alive. The last few pages are like Paul Barrett's brain exploding. Um, (laughs) I'll read you the, the last paragraph of this book right shaky is constantly being quoted as having had a hard time of it on the way up the ladder to success it wasn't all that hard actually any sleeping in the van was done either on the way home or if it broke down although paul barrett was affiliated to the efficient rac for many years hotel (laughs) rooms in europe were of excellent standard paul insisted on it as part of any european deal For a young boy who had left school at 15, semi-literate and without formal qualifications of any kind, (laughs) life as the lead singer in a rock and roll band offered far more glamour and interest and wages than working as an upholsterer ever could. And yet... Now that he 's got his mansion in the country and his big cars, he feels angry at the world for making him wait so long for something he feels he deserved a long time ago, <laughs> hence the aggressive attitude to journalists mm. Mm. but there's a well-known saying in the entertainment business which goes something like, "You should be nice to the people you meet on the way up because you 're going to need them on the way down mm. If Shaky doesn't continue to defy gravity in his career and one day falls from popularity he'll find it so much harder than most to quote paul barrett who has been watching shake his career with the caring concerned interest of a colleague who has been a friend he's got what he always wanted but he's almost certainly lost what he had. No. And what he had, we now understand, was Paul Barrett. Ooh, yes, ooh. And that's a hell of a thing to lose.
2: <laughs> so the following week, Comrade Shaker, after choosing his enemy, this week's number one, prepared his plans minutely and slaked an implacable vengeance upon them <laughs> before going to bed satisfied upon the summit of Mount pop for three weeks in a row, eventually being usurped by a single we're going to hear later on. It would finish the year as the fifth biggest selling single in 1981, one place below Prince Charming and one above Vienna. The follow up, you drive me crazy, spent four weeks at number two, held off the top spot by Standard Deliver. But he went back to the rocking up an old tune bag for the follow up to that and took Green Door to number one for four weeks in August. An overweight cottage still stands today after it was bought by a local architect and converted and refurbished, offering 2,150 square feet of well proportioned living accommodation an L-shaped reception room, a double-aspect sitting room with an open fireplace, four double bedrooms, and a double cart lodge, which went on the market in 2019 at nearly 700
1: grand. Oof. I did some of the notes for this one in a cafe on Bessemer Green Road, and right. it says here in my notes, and I quote... Two beautiful women in their early 20s at next table laughing, sat here on my own trying to think of something new to say about Shaking Stevens. Perhaps I should introduce myself. That might go well. Mm. Ask them if they can think of something new to say about Shaking Stevens. Help what has happened. Sweet bird, you are quicker than a falling star. But it's a tough world. Mm. Nobody Mm. ever said it wasn't going to be a tough Mm. world. And did you? No, of course not. No.
0: J.P.
3: Seaman from this old house is at number two. And it's been some time since Colin Blundstone blessed the British TV scene. But he's together with Dave Stewart, who created his version
2: of the Jimmy Ruffin classic. It's at 30 and what becomes of our broken hearted... Cutting back to Powell, we're immediately whipped into the future as we witness a pair of hands operating a bank of synthesizers. Powell tells us that it's been a long time since the next act, bless the British TV scene, making it sound like Danny LaRue's return from Vegas. But no, (laughs) it's what becomes of our broken-hearted tut-tut-tut by Dave Stewart with Colin Blundstone. Born in Hatfield in 1945, Colin Blundstone was the son of an aeronautical engineer and a professional dancer who teamed up with Paul Atkinson, Hugh Grunde and Rod Argent to form the Zombies in 1961, while they were all at the St Albans County Grammar School for Boys. In 1964, after winning a beat combo battle of the band's competition sponsored by the London Evening News, they signed a deal with Decca and their debut single, She's Not There, immediately smashed into the chart, spending two weeks at number 12 in September of that year. That would be their only top 40 hit in the UK however as they spent much of 1965 in America and in 1967 they signed to CBS to record the LP Odyssey and Oracle, the lead off cut of which Time of the Season got to number 3 over there in March of 1969 despite the fact that the band had split up in December of 1967 leading to not only one but two bands to tour around America pretending to be them, one of which featured Frank Baird and Dusty Hill before they formed ZZ Top. Blundstone had quit the music business after the zombies split and had worked as an insurance clerk for a while, but the success of Time of the Season encouraged him to return as a solo artist, recording a new version of She's Not There under the name Neil MacArthur, which got to number 34 over here in the last week of 1969. In 1971, he signed to Epic and put out his debut solo LP, One Year, and the lead-off single, Say You Don't Mind, got to number 15 in March of 1972. The follow-up, I Don't Believe in Miracles, got to number 31, but when his next single and the next two LPs flopped, he moved to Rocket Records, putting out three more LPs that were only released in Europe. This year, however, he's teamed up with Dave Stewart, the former keyboard player of Egg, Hatfield and the North and Bruford, but not the Eurythmics, for a cover of the Jimmy Ruffin single, which got to number 8 in January of 1967 and number 4 in August of 1974. It entered the chart last week at number fifty seven and this week it soared twenty seven places to number thirty and Here they are in the studio. first question, chaps, would you have known anything about the zombies at the
3: time um at the time no, not in eighty one no no. I'm a bit
2: older than you, so I would have heard She's Not There, but more likely the Santana version in 1977 or the UK subs one in 1979. Is this before or after
1: that advert that went, let me tell you, that is Goose's Cook? Ooh. Memorable, wasn't it? Yeah. That was the first time I heard (laughs) She's Not There. I remember hearing this advert thinking, this is a great tune. Mm. and And my mum or dad going, it's an old song. Yeah. What was that for? Mm, I remember that about as well as you remember the advert. <laughs> oh, well.
3: Some office shit. <laughs> well, it's worth, isn't it? Because we've just had Shaky doing an old song, mm. and I'd have been delighted about that, and I'd have been so angry about this Right, eight-year-old. Mm. You know what? It actually makes me angry now. Really? <laughs> More angry? The music pop- well, in a way, there's too many oddities here in a sort of pop cultural history sense in my head to deal with. What we have here... We have essentially a sort of prog rocker in a way from Hatfield in the north backing a 60s site pop singer, playing a vintage Motown song electronically while wearing a pill t shirt. Mm. I mean, I think the key word here is bank raid, basically. <laughs> this, will, this will be a hit among oldies and perhaps for a few youngies who like their synth. It's Tainted Love for
2: dads, isn't
3: it, this? Yeah, 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 yeah. But, uh, you know, whereas Tainted Love, the thing is, you know, the differences in the soft-cell version of Tainted Love to the original are delightful. The differences with the original here are really key. Mm. Blundstone, I mean he has got one of the clearest most liquid voices in British pop mm. um, it's a great voice he's got yes he has so that means in this version you know there's no umph or grit here mm. like the Jimmy Ruffin version Yeah, and he's not
2: clapping with massive gold bangles on and eyeliner <laughs> no, he's,
3: he's not but that suits Stuart's arrangement mm. which occasionally breaks off into these sort of odd passages of nothingness That the song happens but in between there's like these demo of the presets on his keyboard basically you mm. know a, a journey around his ace keyboard so this would have angered me this would have angered me as much as the sort of spike conk, punk in the front row um, of yes. the audience who clearly didn't have to stand there no just decides to go stand there and look totally disgusted with the whole thing <laughs> it is dad synth it's one of those songs i mean dad synth there's a genre to conjure mm. with isn't it it is
2: it God, is but what no, else is going to be in that <laughs>
3: Well, it's things like Jean-Michel Jarre and things, you know. It's My Party by of Dose course, yeah. yeah, of course, of course. I think the kids would have known of the original.
2: I did at the time. I mean, we've mentioned on Chommy's before that this is one of the greatest songs ever when it was done by Jimmy Ruffin. Mm. I knew of it by the time this came out and I didn't approve. Look,
3: bunstow has got a lovely voice. Mm. It's a well-appointed, well-toured voice, but it's not the right song for him, I don't think. You want mm. a bit of grit with this song. It's about having a broken heart. So yeah, you know, um that that's lacking. And what Stuart fills things out with is all a bit proggy, it's a bit pre Howard Jonesy, it's a it's it's not pleasant.
1: Mm. I'm honestly not sure who's the worst Dave Stewart. <laughs> this one, the one from the Eurythmics Or the one who fucked my cousin's hamster to death. (laughs) Easily done. Yeah, well, i certainly trust you on that. (laughs) This sideline of taking old songs and doing them in a self-consciously modern style, Mm. you know, like a more basic BEF. Yeah. I don't like it. I Mm. I didn't like it then. And I don't like the modern equivalent, which is ukulele Trostovarian type, mm, you know, mm. or some indie band doing, hey, listen, this is a pop hit, but we're playing it as though it were real music, yeah. i.e. worse. And it's tired to complain about that stuff. But the point is, we're still getting that kind of stuff, mm. even now mm. when complaining about it has become old hat. Yeah. Never mind the stuff itself. So at this point... It's a bit like being an evolutionary biologist and meeting a fundamentalist Christian who says, ah, you believe that one day a fish just turned into a monkey. Mm. It's like you spent 35 years developing your understanding of the most arcane intricacies of your speciality and then suddenly you realize the power is with people who aren't just totally ignorant they're frighteningly ignorant Mm. and they're looking down their nose at you and they're in charge you know what i mean it's like we're sitting at home splitting the pop cultural atom in between counting out two pence pieces and (laughs) scrubbing mold off the shower and these cunts are basically banging two rocks together and grunting, and they've just taken delivery of a new Ferrari Monza. Mm. Yeah, cunts! Well, I say good luck to
2: him, Colin. He he looks very Mister Lucas in his shiny powder blue suit at first, as, <laughs> as he's obscured by the spiky hair of that punk youth. But
1: but that's the best bit because yes. yeah, it's it's it, the camera trying to swing around the conker shell hair of a 1981 punk Mm. because his spikes are obscuring colin blunston's face Mm. or rather the underside of colin blunston's (laughs) face because it's the usual top of the pops camera angle so it looks like you're giving him a fucking (laughs) blowjob but it's possibly the most authentic image Mm. of bog standard 1981 Mm. right as opposed to the curated Modern memory version yeah. is a a sixties relic in a sports jacket, grinding out a last few grand, semi-obscured by an eighteen-year-old who's four years out of date. Yeah. There was there was a lot of this. Yeah. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, what would that lad think of Dave Stewart wearing a pill t-shirt? Eh? <laughs> mm. I, maybe I, uh, you know what? Maybe you know when they were coming on stage before the floor. You know when the floor manager got them on stage, the punk saw that t-shirt and thought. Ooh. I went and had a look, but yeah. Yeah, he I'd looks- get up the front. Exactly, he looks bitterly disappointed. Mm. I mean, they're both being retrograde, obviously, because, like Taylor says, this guy's four years out of date. This spiky conk punk. He he mm. literally looks like yeah one of those ones who was posing for Japanese tourists for a quid a pop in nineteen seventy eight. <laughs> you know when it was all over. But yeah, um, yeah it, it, it's it's grimness. It's and, and, and you know it's weird because you know I was I was having lots of fun listening to Shaky literally thirty seconds ago, no, and then here's Neil. another old song. And I'm hating every minute of it as an eight-year-old, most certainly. Is that because you
2: could associate yourself more with old houses than you could with broken hearts? It's simple at that
3: age, isn't it. It's mm. just, um, it's just. This has got to be. This hasn't. Fuck this. Yeah, you know.
2: But when the camera pulls back and we see Mister Lucas in his full pomp, it. Hang on a minute. He's actually come dressed as Shaking Stevens, hasn't he? He's got the collars (laughs) turned up and he's even got white fucking shoes on. God, just as well it was only a Shaking Stevens video this week or uh, Colin Blundstone would be summoned up to a dressing room at the end
3: of the show for a a dressing down. It's a neat preview of of just how dull synthesizers can be as well. I mean, you know, there was an awful lot of synth excitement in this period. Mm. But this was a reminder that, yeah, in the wrong hands, they could just be turned into, an even more syrupy version of normal music if you
1: like Mm. yeah and i mean this is such a good tune you can't completely kill it no No, but there's nothing gained by removing any trace of a groove and Mm. replacing Mm. it with that on the beat school assembly piano and this sort of not the nine o'clock news idea of what synth pop was yeah Mm. it's not age well because It's neither an honest human statement nor a a, a shiny electronic thrill. Mm. Mm. It just, like you say, it sounds like a demo of some new equipment that he's knocked up on a wet Wednesday. You know, it's not thought through. It's not really an attempt to create anything. It's completely unserious, but also completely humorless. So who cares? Like the only conceivable
3: human reaction is so what? Mm. Yeah. So what? I mean, it, he he plays the melody like one hand did um, in the instrumental break. And just how much better would it have been if I don't know? It had done it with a dog bark sample or something. <laughs> like <laughs> Total gimmickry. Whereas whereas he's demonstrating the kind of classiness of these the, the, this kind of instrumentation yeah. and that. And that's what's boring about it. And that's what's you know it's not uh, top of the pops, is it? This this is afternoon plus at best. Oh uh,
1: yes. And the terrible thing is they pumped out hypefuls of this shit oh yeah Dave Stewart and Barbara Gaskin mm. yeah in their folly a deux, like all through the 80s and 90s even into this century really they kept on getting stuck into these old songs like mm. Fred and Rose they put out
4: <laughs> thousands of
1: of pointless CDs full of stupid electronic cover versions released as albums just because they could mm. they kept putting out singles too there's a version of the locomotion yes. from 1986 yeah a year before kylie minogue's somehow more successful version mm. and it sounds exactly as you would imagine a dave stewart and barbara gaskin cover mm. of the locomotion oh. released in 1986 to sound like presumably he owned the studio because there's no way they made a living from that. Mm. <laughs> you know, that and working with Victor Lewis Smith, which was yeah. the other thing he did. At least it's a, an arresting contrast. Mm. And he did the music for most of Victor Lewis Smith's shows.
2: So he, he did sing If You're Glad to Be Gay and the Doctor Who theme, which was a work of genius. I
1: would imagine imagined that would be his handiwork, yeah. Mm. yeah. But it can't <laughs> have been a living wage, right? And yet... I don't recall picking up a newspaper and seeing the headline on page 19, Dave Stewart starves to death, and in smaller print underneath, (laughs) no, not that Dave Stewart, the other one. (laughs) Passerby alerted authorities after seeing 105 bottles of milk on his doorstep and (laughs) flies pouring out of the kitchen
3: window because nobody cared. Mm. So, you know, he must have done better than me at least. It's strangely dead emotionally, this song as well, for, for, for doing this song. It feels, um, the, the word is joyless, I think. Joyless in the making yeah. of it. Joyless in the performance of it. And you know what? What personal satisfaction would you get from being part of this record? None mm. whatsoever. You've taken a great song. And yeah you've done very very little with it bar tart up the equipment a little bit but you know there is a lot of this i mean we've got we've got another record in the charts from them haven't we and i mean i'm intrigued as well by apart from dave and Colin, who else is on stage there?
2: Well, is that Barbara Gaskin off to the side, yeah. wearing the sort of jumpsuit Prince was fond of drawing around the world in a day?
3: It could be. Mm. Hair, the hair threw me off. The hair threw me off because yes. it's not like she's in the video for the other song, but um, yeah. yeah, it may well be. And you can
2: definitely see this being on the portable telly in the dressing room of the Q-tips <laughs> and their lead singer looking at it and thinking, hmm, old Motown here's yeah. giving an 80s mm. sheen. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Wonder what Pino Palladino's up to. <laughs> <laughs> Time to to nip off to Burton's to get that flecked grey suit I've been looking at <laughs> anything else to say about this no
3: and, and the fact that I've got nothing else to say about it angers me in itself
2: <laughs> so the following week what becomes of the broken hearted soared 11 places to number 19 and a fortnight later began a two-week stand at number 13 Blundstone's follow-up, a synthy cover of Tracks of My Tears, would only get to number 16 in June of 1982, by which time he'd joined the Alan Parsons project, and in 1984 he teamed up with David Payton and other APP members to form the rock band Keats. He's still active today, working with Rod Argent and making occasional appearances in Manfred Mann. Meanwhile, Stuart repeated the trick when he teamed up with Barbara Gaskin and put out a cover of It's My Party, which got to number one for four weeks in October oh, of this year.
3: Four weeks. I wouldn't mind it if they weren't picking such great songs to cover, mm. but just they're sucking any resonance that they once had out of them. Welcome to the 80s, Neil. <laughs> Indeed. I've been everywhere just to- <laughs>
2: No pop craze youngsters, we're going to step away from this episode, catch us breaths and come back hard tomorrow because ooh, we've got some big names coming up. Don't forget, if you want to see me, Neil and Taylor in the flesh at the London Podcast Festival, do not about. Get your arse over to kingsplace.co.uk now and get your tickets sorted. So, until we meet again for part three of Chart Music number 71, and on behalf of Neil Kulkani and Taylor Parks, this is Al Needham imploring you to stay pop crazed.
3: Chart Music.